You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by full house of Cavishians tonight. John, Josh Nelson, <laughs> Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. What do you think of that, Cavishians? As soon as you said full house, I'm just thinking Olsen twins, so sorry. I went somewhere else. You're the, you're the John Stamos <laughs> of, oh, thank of this you. full cave. No, Thomas has got the Stamos hair, though, tonight. I'm but more that Joey douchebag. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't have to have... We just do not have to have this conversation. It's true. <laughs> Film criticism at its best is what we promise you and usually fail to deliver. Tonight, we're going to take a look at the American drama comedy The Meddler, a new film starring Susan uh, Sarandon. And the, the Scorsese exhibition is about to open in Melbourne, so we we're going to begin our look back at some of Martin Scorsese's films. We're going to start tonight with his 1974 film, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. But first we're going to begin with Chasing Asylum. This is a new documentary by Australian-born filmmaker Eva Orner, who, among many other things, uh, has uh, produced Alex Gibney's Academy Award-winning documentary Taxi to the Dark Side. Chasing Asylum is Orner's second feature film as director and it recently had its world premiere at the Hot Docs International Documentary Film Festival in Canada. It also sold out as the opening night film here in Melbourne as part of the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. Uh, it also sold out at its repeat screening. Uh, it's about to open around Australia this week. It's a film about the way Australia has treated asylum seekers and refugees in offshore detention camps. It includes extensive footage from inside the camps. Now, the film does acknowledge that the hardline approach Australia has taken on boat arrivals has slowed down the number of people attempting to get to Australia. But the film looks at the extremely high price of this policy in terms of actual money spent to, to enforce this policy, but more significantly in terms of how ethically bankrupt such a policy is. that allows for ongoing abuse of human rights that has included and still includes physical, psychological and sexual abuse of men, women and children. It's going to be a difficult film to talk about, I suspect. There's a few things we have to do here. We have to evaluate whether or not this is good documentary filmmaking. We have to ask ourselves about the importance of such a film due to its subject matter. And we also have to, I think, ask the question of would the people who would most benefit from seeing such a film get a chance or be convinced to go and see this film? So, who on earth wants to start? Oh yeah, I'll pick this up. Um, this film, I think, I think the director's explicitly stated that her express aim with this film is to shame Australia internationally. Uh, so th this is a very, very clearly a work of agitprop, uh, as opposed to what we might say propaganda, which is when typically those who have the power produce something that is meant to uh, sway opinion and usually, usually to nefarious ends. You don't usually hear the word propaganda in any sort of positive sense, where agitprop is where the, the generally um, the less empowered are given a voice and uh, activism is the, the key here. And so that, that's very much what Eva Orner is up to with this film. She is out to enrage people and um, uh, and and upset them and uh, hopefully make them vote out um, one bunch of evil bastards for a, another evil bunch of bastards. It's a bit complex, actually, the whole electoral system here. But nonetheless, uh, uh, this film is meant to really shame Australia worldwide and my very great hope is that... Uh, distribution networks worldwide will find a way to accept this into uh, 
festivals and hopefully into releases as well. This is only getting very narrow release here, I believe. So it's just Cinema Nova in, in Melbourne, is it? Or? Uh, no, the Cinema Nova is one of them. I think Lido and maybe one other ah, good. cinema. Good. Maybe the classic. People yeah. will have to look it up online. It's getting a very small cinema release, but there's also a huge number of special event screenings. You um, can actually work, if you'd like to be involved with one of these screenings, if you go to the Chasing Asylum website, there's actually a link which is host a screening. So people, there's a, I love this website because it's just a list of ways that you can get involved, like snap out of the paralysis and do something. Well, that's, yeah. The filmmaker and the distributors are making it very easy for you to see this film. Yeah, great, because it's, it's the whole point it's not a film that's uh, got the uh, the profit motive as its key um, for it, uh, the reason for its production it really is there to affect change this film is incredibly upsetting i, I actually watched this uh, in the middle of the night i was already vulnerable this destroyed me um the, the footage uh, smuggled out of the camps uh, on nauru and manus island is extremely distressing uh, and uh, a tribute to great bravery on the part of some people who took this footage and, and found a means of getting it uh, off the islands. That's no easy feat, as this uh, film makes abundantly clear. Uh, that which finds its way onto these tropical hellholes tends to stay there. And um, so I, we, we get testimonies here from people who've often very naively volunteered their services to uh, help people uh, they went there with the best of intentions and found themselves hopelessly out of their depth they're traumatized but that is as nothing to the trauma that is abundantly clear that is being inflicted upon all of these uh poor desperately uh poor asylum seekers who are in uh, a plight that uh doesn't show any signs being resolved anytime soon and um uh, i yeah look you know i, I I'll start welling up if I really get on my high horse. So how about I throw it over to someone else to, well, to run with her a bit? I would just want, want to kind of leap off from that point you made about the fact that the, the documentary really even exists is in itself a political statement. Given the culture of, of, of silence surrounding refugees and asylum seekers and, and the legislature around it in terms of um, whistleblowers from uh, social workers, uh, security guards and so on, where no one is allowed, according to the legislation, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, to, to speak out or to pass on information at risk of their own sort of um, peril, legal peril and so on. So the fact that the footage has made it out, the fact that there is in fact a documentary about this subject and these subjects is in itself a, a pretty huge political statement. And I think it's, it's effective just from that point of view um, alone. One of the interesting techniques that Orn has used here in terms of the footage that has made its way into the documentary is preserving the anonymity of a lot of the subjects, particularly those um, those refugees and asylum seekers in Manus and, and Nauru. And what I think that does, obviously it has a functional purpose in terms of that anonymity and the privacy and obviously not wanting there to be greater re repercussions for those people who were prepared to speak on, on camera. But it removes it from this idea that it's just these people, that it's just this series of individuals. It, it grants the subjects of the film a symbolic status and a, and a power which has a broader pull as a result of the, their, their privacy. We're not meaning to see them as, as one-to-one. These people don't just represent individuals. They represent generations of, of people. And, you know, off, we're often um, reminded of the numbers in terms of the thousands and thousands who are currently in these various places. And not just the people who've made their way to places like Indonesia with a view to then coming to Australia who are now sort of stranded as well. So you, uh, one of the strengths of this documentary 
documentary, it doesn't just go for the, the simple, easy subjects. It's trying to give a multi-pronged approach to what has actually taken place as a result of this swathe of refugees and, and asylum seekers. I'm so envious of how eloquently and passionately you guys are speaking. I'm worried that if I really let loose, I'm going to be dragged out of the studio on charges of treason um, because I, obviously, like all of us, I think we're quite um, emotionally affected by this film. Um, and for me, it's, it's questions, precisely, Cerise, that you pointed out, questions of, of shame, um, this, this sense of paralysis, and how do we, how do we shift this idea of, of this kind of shame paralysis into some kind of action that is, that is functional? Um, and one of the things that, I, Thomas, this leads into your question, I think, is how does this work as a documentary? Quite early on in the film, um, one of the interview subjects says something along the lines of, you know, the, the asylum seekers have the right to tell their stories these are stories that they should their stories should be heard and they should be taken into consideration and these are stories that are not being that are not being heard and i think the film really takes that as almost its central point in that this is a space where stories can be told not just of the asylum seekers themselves and these horrific horrific stories that we hear unfold time and time again peaking throughout the film i mean i you know there's interview with um uh, Reza Barati's parents, I think, is one of... I mean, highlight's not exactly the word that I'd use, but certainly one of the more memorable moments of this film. But also, like you said, Cerise, you know, interviews with social workers and what really struck me with these people, aside from their bravery for speaking up and actually agreeing to be interviewed, um, was their need to tell their story. These were, this, this is a documentary about people having the right to tell their stories. It, yeah, one thing that occurred to me is there's going to be a conservative backlash over this film because our unofficial sort of media outlet for the government, which is News Limited, who have become a fierce propaganda machine, no doubt will set the watchdog, the attack dogs on this film. And I was trying to think what sort of things will they say, and they'll probably argue that it doesn't show both sides, it's only showing one side of the picture. And I think the important thing to stress is all we've been getting about this story, by and large, has been intense propaganda from the government and News Limited, um, uh, bordering on, you know, some of it has been blatant lies, there's been a lot of misinformation, there's been a lot of obscuring the truth, and just we get a lot of informa in information in bits and pieces. And that's the other thing that struck me while watching this. I realised I knew most of this stuff. I know most of this, but I've heard it over the years in little bits and pieces that isolated that I could put away and not be too concerned about. This film puts all the pieces together and presents it as a whole, and that's when the true horror hits you. And, yeah, sure, that shame. I, I remember as a child, and the butt of so many jokes was South Africa as being the human rights abuse capital of the world at the time, and we used to think about how horrible apartheid was, and I can't really trust any white South African people because even if they're saying they're against this, they're still living in a country that allows this to happen and they're part of it. And I'm watching this film thinking, we've become that. Our yeah. country has become that. And I hope, I do hope this film shames Australia in the rest of the world. Even though, as we see in this film, when organisations like the UN con condemn what we're doing, we have prime ministers who, who just say we don't like being told what to do. So I don't know. I, I, it's more than voting out the current bunch because the alternative is just as bad. I'd like to get rid of the all two parties at the moment and start again. And I'm just going to stress that point. If you're young and you haven't registered to vote, 40 minutes now, because they reckon that the, that the number of unregistered youth um, are enough actually to sway the outcomes of this election. There's a website that I've just noticed in the last couple of days. I don't know how long it's been up. It says that it's independent, so I'm not, I'm not uh, promoting this site as such. I've just noticed it. But I, there's a lot of resources on the Chasing Asylum website that I mentioned, but there's also a website which I think is uh, voteonerefugees.com which um, promotes itself as a independent website, which is it just kind of lists, there's like a pledge 
Um, and there's a list of resources that you can look at if this is something that is of interest to you as a voter. Mm. If you haven't enrolled to vote, these are places to go and to start having a look around. And I do want to say, I actually think this is an excellent documentary, beside the fact that it's making a powerful point and, you know, it's emotive and it's so topical. I think this is beautifully made. I think it's very effective. It really knows when to introduce some of the more difficult material, like it... For want of a better expression, it eases you gently into some of the more troubling and difficult stuff. And I think that's very sophisticated in how it's made. And, and as you were saying, Josh, I think it's really great that it shows us there this, this dissent and this outcry isn't just a bunch of random disgruntled individuals. It's huge swathes of people who have been horrified of what they've witnessed. Yeah, it avoids the sensationalism. That's always a kind of a key yes. thing for me. You know, is it going to treat the issue with, you know... I mean, you can you can sense when documentary filmmakers feel like they've got a, a sensational subject that they're going to make a career of they're gonna make their name off i don't think orna has done that at all with this film despite clear potential given that she has a, ha, access to this foot, footage for that to take place um you know i think this is a, you know, a remarkable documentary in terms of the structure as well this could have been a series of random kind of excerpts of, of footage but there is a real sense of 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 canniness in terms of how she's ordered the structure and i have to say coming towards the end of the film in terms of the way in which she brings it back to say what took place in the 1970s and this is not we don't even need to talk about spoilers. It's hardly a spoiler. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. It, it just re- remarkable. And, and even as I was watching it, I had, had sort of somehow forgotten that. And when that comes forward, you realise, hang on, we're now 40 years on and yet so backward in terms of the, the scale of the... the Vietnam War, post-Vietnam War generation and, and movement of immigration to what's taken place now. And when you have, you know, figures like Malcolm Fraser, conservative, who seems, look, he makes his made to look almost like a radical leftist compared to the current parties, and I say that in plural because the, the documentary certainly doesn't play partisan politics. I think it, it, it really is a, a, a smart, um, dignified documentary. That shocking uh, moment in the interview with Fraser in this film where it's, well, how do you, how do you stop the deaths at sea? You put them on a plane. Yeah. You fly people here. Like, that devastated me. It's like, that's a very logical thing. And that chilling sense of we've been here before and we dealt with it differently and we dealt with it better. Yeah, he is the one voice of common sense pretty well in the film, you could say, uh, from any sort of official standpoint, not least because anybody involved in Australian politics subsequent to him declined to be interviewed for this film. So... Uh, Sarah Hansen Young gets a shout out as someone who she does did a, yeah. an amazing humanitarian act yes. in, in a sequence that, that broke yeah. me. The yeah. story yeah. that he's told yeah. about. He, as soon as it goes yeah. into the territory involving uh, children mm. suffering there and and uh, images, the little drawings that kids mm. have made in it's uh, detention. To Australia too. Kids in detention. Just, seeing, yeah. to just seeing those camps, yeah. just actually seeing mm. what they look like, was shocking to me. Yeah, and just, just yeah, as you say, Tom, it's that particular little. Uh, it's a little mm, factoid. This, they just pop up on screen time to time. Just let, let, allow you to, to drink them in and be horrified at uh, how uh, appalling um, Australia is conducting itself on the world stage. I think uh, 67th most, um, or least really, uh, was it per capita, I yeah. think, uh, in terms of uh, refugee intake? intake yep. 67th! Mm. One of the richest nations on the planet. Yeah. Only country that holds children in indefinite detention. Yeah. Thank you, good night. Was it half a million dollars per... Per person. Yeah, per person. And we, yeah. we complain about how much yeah. money it would cost to take more refugees, yet we're paying half a million dollars. I mean, I know that we're all really busy asking our parents to buy us houses and mourning the arts and the death of community radio, but that's a bit of a wake-up call for me. Yeah, it's, it's money can't make sense of it. It's just you know, the whole lunacy has... Uh, well, I, I don't want to... 
going to some lunatics have taken over the uh, asylum seeker uh, debate, but they have long, long taken over it. Uh, chasing Asylum, we're going to all really stress that you should see this film. It's fine filmmaking. It's extraordinarily important. If you think you know these issues, this film will solidify your information and fire up and actually give you a lot of information to uh, present to others. And if you really, you know, if you've, if you, if you've hated listening to us and, and you think that we're all being lefty, softies, pinko, nutjobs, whatever, please still go and see this film. See if your beliefs still hold up once you've seen this film you're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R 3 Triple R We are talking about The Medlow. This is the new film by writer-director Loreen Scafari, whose previous credits include writing and directing Seeking a Friend for the End of the World in 2012. Now, The Medlow stars Susan Sarandon as the well-meaning but interfering Amani who deals with her boredom and grief for her dead husband by constantly intruding into her daughter's life. Laurie, played by Rose Byrne. When Laurie does manage to create some distance between herself and her mother, Marnie uses her goodwill and the disposable wealth left to her by her husband to assist with the lives of other people she meets. Now, this, this film has elements of the rom-com in it, but it also embraces a lot more serious subject matter and style uh, with its focus on this complicated mother-daughter relationship and also coping with grief. I felt there was a really odd mix of styles and tones in this film, often to the degree that frustratingly worked against itself. Discuss. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I think I probably would have fallen asleep in this film if it wasn't for the amazing cast. I think the cast really carried this film and really maintained my interest. I mean, Susan Sarandon, she's all tits and politics, you know, who doesn't love that? She's amazing in this film. She's just wonderful. J.K. Simmons? I would watch that. J.K. He plays Dolly Parton for chickens. And he plays a lovely character and I I just, Mm. I would watch him boil water for an hour and a half. There's a photo of him when he's young in the film, worth the price of entry just to see him (laughs) young with hair, like just just beautiful and Rose Byrne I think is really solid like I think that she's a really solid and it's more of a serious role for her than a, than I'm kind of I guess more used to seeing her in the more kind of uh, comic performances this is a, this for me is otherwise kind of an aeroplane film it felt like the kind of film that I would watch on a plane and I don't know whether that's harsh I, I I was frustrated by this film because I was I really enjoyed most of it, but there are aspects of it that kept on pulling me out of my enjoyment. I thought Sarandon was spectacularly good in this. Like I, she just gives one of the best performances I've seen her give in, in quite a while, and she's con- she's that. consistently good. But she really knocks it out of the park here, and and you know her relationship with Rose Byrne is fantastic. Yeah, as you said, J.K. Simmons is great. The core cast, the core story is really good, and it's surrounded by elements that feel like it's come from maybe a Judd Apatow comedy. Like, a lot of the, the smaller characters are very broad and over the top. The, you know, the alarm bells went off in an early sequence where they go to um, a, a, a baby shower and the characters are really exaggerated, kind of bridezilla, not a mumzilla Zilla types. And, and these kind of over-the-top characters and gags keep intruding into what feels like a more kind of grounded film. And the worst moment is when she meets up with her dead husband's family and they're these ridiculous caricature of Italian-Americans. It felt like something from a sketch. And they're all talking about eating pasta and how much they love Sinatra. And then they quoted... Um, 
what, what's that, that Sinatra song? They say, I did it my way. They're claiming that I did it my way was, you know, that her husband's favourite Sinatra song. And I, I'm not a huge Sinatra expert, but I know enough to know that most Sinatra diehards hate that song. It's a <laughs> rubbish song that only amateurs associate as a great Sinatra song. So elements like that really annoyed me because I thought otherwise there was a really strong film buried in all that. It's a really middling film. I, I didn't mind. The middling meddler. The middling meddler. <laughs> middling meddler. Yeah, you know, look, it's... Uh, I, I, I don't have a lot to say about this film. It's just all very pleasant. I mean, actually, I, to be honest, I, it did move me to some extent. The the, the grief in it is... They're, they're, Rose Byrne and, and Susan Sarandon are, are able to communicate uh, suffering in a way that is underplayed relative, as you say, Thomas, to the way that some of these other characters are very broadly depicted and enacted. So, yes, that whole wedding party uh, is all a bit OTT. And there's some really odd cameos in this. Like Michael McKean pops up mostly just to get punched in the cock. I mean, what's that for? <laughs> <laughs> Harry, yeah. Harry Hamlin does yeah. a really weird cameo in this too. There's a really, really weird Harry Hamlin cameo. He doesn't get punched in the cock. <laughs> Which one's Harry Hamlin? Harry Hamlin is the actor in the pilot who plays the f- character based on the father in the... Yeah, it's another idea. Yeah, yeah very, very that, brief. That's all very odd, isn't it? Opposite uh, yeah. Laura Sangiacomo, who's mysteriously there just for that scene. Who too, also so doesn't get punched in the cock. <laughs> oh, I've got to say... <laughs> you started this. You are selling this it. film to me. I'll give you a list on who and who does not. <laughs> I think it's, it's a really curious example of a film that somehow lost its, it, it, its core. Because I, I like, will, like this conversation, <laughs> like, like a lot of our conversations. <laughs> there, there's... There, there are a number of things in this that really showed promise that doesn't pan out. Like, even stylistically, there are camera movements in this film towards the start that made me laugh. There's a really great pan where she's slowly backing away from this guy who's trying to pick her up. And I don't know why, but just, it's just that pan creating an enormous space between her and this guy who's slowly realising that, yep, she's not interested. I found really, really funny. And they did another great camera movement later in the film where they're showing all these couples having dinner together and we finally arrive at her table and she's there with her daughter and it's covered in rose petals. Yeah, just the way they move the camera in some of these moments was really sort of offbeat and, and, and funny, but that just, yeah, didn't stay for the rest of the film. This might be uptight. I was a little weirded out or just a little bewildered, I guess, by the title, uh, The Meddler. There's something about it that, I don't know, it's like, it just reminded me of these kind of really archaic words like spinster, you know, the idea of this sort of widow figure as being this meddling mother, because the film's not really about that it's not about her being the meddler you know it's sounds like that jane fonda j-lo film which is probably called something like the meddler (laughs) i haven't seen that film either but um, there is a film which jane fonda is the meddling mother or the mother-in-law it just feels like a really archaic kind of stereotype and this film really does undermine that because it says you know there's grief involved here and there's real relationship issues that are being dealt with and the uh, surrounding character behaves in this way because she's dealing with bigger things so the film is actually quite sympathetic um, the title doesn't feel sympathetic. Yeah. Well, I think the title's there to deliberately play on expectations about your annoying mothers who constantly intrude in, uh, in our lives. And what this film is showing is when we, when we look closer at the character, there's a lot more depth to her, and, and she's not just, you know, an annoying caricature. I, 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 yeah, I get but, that, but, but the it title didn't, and it, the poster art all works yeah, against it that. Yeah, it didn't really... That didn't click for me. It actually just felt a little bit mean-spirited. Yeah. And I don't think the film is, so it sort of framed it as being a little... I don't know, there was a kind of dis- 
just a little bit disjointed on that front for me. It didn't really quite intersect in the way that it. If only she'd come out at some point and said, "Medal me this," and then uh, <laughs> oh, that would have been a whole or just different. Kind of wielding her fingers, yeah. kind of wiggling her fingers in a in a meddling manner would yeah. have been great. So a bit of high camp wouldn't have gone astray. <laughs> Mustachio no, twirling. Less, less high camp. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> all, all, all high camp because yeah, that tonal mix. It is one or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's not balanced. It's a bit weird, and I, I do wonder. Um, are we supposed to know much about this director, the creative force behind this film? Because we have, as we had last... No, when I was last on two weeks ago, a film within a film situation. And I, and that film within a film is clearly reflexive of the, the screenwriter character's own relationship with her parents, one who's just recently deceased. But then I wonder how much of that is supposed to bounce out of the film altogether and should we know anything about well, this? This director is not nearly as big a presence in... American no. film culture, as, as um, Nana Moretti is in Italy, but I, I believe that she did base a lot of her own experiences. Yeah, uh, sorry, she did base this right. film on a lot of her own experiences. Yeah, because Rose Byrne's character's name is Laurie, and the director's name's what is it, Laurie? I mean, there's, there's clearly I some, the surely ago, something. Didn't I? Yeah, Laurie, yeah. I, it's not a name I was Lorraine, acquainted yeah. with. Any, you do yeah. get the feeling yeah. that something's being worked through yeah. here. Yeah, there is some, um, something Which is perhaps where that kind of respect comes from for these kind of, you know, it's fleshing out these kind of stereotypes and trying to flesh out these cliches. Yeah, so is it studio intervention? Is that Do you get the sense no, that the script it's, it's, is compromised in that way? It's a made film, but it feels like exactly that. Mm. Or it feels like maybe, I don't know, maybe the director just didn't have the full confidence to see it all the way through to the end or, or felt like it needed... I know, zhuzhing up by adding some of these kind of more over-the-top characters on, on, on the side. couple of wines. I would have loved this on a plane, like a long-haul flight. A <laughs> couple really, of shardies. I, really I would have been into this. it. I actually really enjoyed it, but I'm just so frustrated. at It could have been a great film, and it's, it's, I thought it was an okay film. That's J.K. Simmons in it. He, look, he <laughs> looks great. And Susan Sarandon does some pretty good stoned acting. I mean, I know stoned acting, we've seen it a billion times before, but well, I like understated, her. understated, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's good. But that, that stuff was good. Yeah. Can I talk about her boobs? She had great boobs. Yeah, sure. I was <laughs> glad you went there. <laughs> and politics. I was going to go politics. hashtag Cairns because she's just been at Cairns and Sarandon and Cairns. There's a joke Thanks in Thanks for there. joining in, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> you can fill in the blanks. You're listening to Planet Cave here on 3 Triple R. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. So the Scorsese exhibition will open at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image this week and one of the film programs showing alongside the exhibition is Essential Scorsese, selected by David Stratton. We're going to take a look at a number of the films screening in this program over the next few weeks, but we've decided to focus on some of the lesser-known films that don't get talked about as much. So tonight we're going to kick off with 1974's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, the film that Martin Scorsese made between mainstream Streets and Taxi Driver. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore stars Ellen Burstyn. She won an Academy Award for the role. She's a 35-year-old woman who, after the death of her husband, goes on the road with her 12-year-old son to start life anew by pursuing her pre-marriage ambition of working professionally as a singer. The film co-stars Harvey Keitel, Diane Ladd, Chris Christopherson. Sounds like a made-up name when you read it. Chris Christopherson. <laughs> Back <and> off. <laughs> Settle down. Oh, Chris Christopherson. Yeah, I'll, I'll have my time. Jodie Foster's in this as well. Good this, call. Was, this was her first film with Scorsese before Taxi Driver. Uh, yeah, th- th- these actors all play various people, Alice and her son, encounter. This has a rare focus on a female protagonist for a Scorsese film. So how do we all think this compares to other Scorsese films? Can I leap off by just on that on that point about gender and, and his filmmaking and saying, you know, he's 
become in the kind of canon of film criticism and, and film appreciation so synonymous with these images of lonely masculinity in crisis type uh, figures. I mean, sort of iconically so, particularly from Taxi Driver afterwards, his, his next film. And I think what often gets lost from this debate and the kind of the analysis and, and, and the observations of Scorsese is these wonderful films that, that focus on characters and narratives and storylines that aren't like that, that aren't that urban gangster um, style of, of filmmaking. And this is a really extraordinary film. I'm so glad we revisited it. I don't think I've seen this film in probably 10, 15 years. In yeah, fact, same. the last time I watched it, I'm sure I was watching a crappy Pan and Scan VHS copy, and I'd forgotten just how visually exciting this film, the opening sequence in which we see a sort of a snapshot of Alice as a seven or eight-year-old, and it's like a moment from Wizard of Oz, like these extraordinary kind of dark reddish orange colours on this sort of state in this sort of sound set with her outside the the family home it's just such a remarkable sequence to begin a a film with even before that you have the douglas sirk influenced opening titles or referencing this glory era of hollywood melodrama and yeah that that melodrama and the the wizard of oz setting it's like a reverse wizard of oz yeah and that you go from this kind of intense colored world to this more banal one it's a really amazing uh, yeah, to do. And she's, she's extraordinary. When, when we finally do cut to person moments later, I mean, you know, this in terms of the exposition as well, I mean, th- there's such a kind of uh, an economy of scale with the filmmaking and the scripting here that within 20 minutes we know her character, she's lost her husband and she's on the road. It's just such a strong film stylistically and thematically in terms of, of that. And, you know, it's, it's no surprise she won the Oscar. She's extraordinary in this film. I mean, she owns it. And my, my concern watching this again and having not seen it in such a long time was knowing Chris Christopherson's going to come in at some point and is our identification going to switch to the male character? Because he's so used to that with a Scorsese film and the film is so clever and so strong in the way in which the entire film is structured around her point of view. There's, there's, even when the kind of charismatic male comes in at the latter stages of the film, we're still kind of team burst and all the way. Well, there's another charismatic male throughout too, the kid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's astonishing. and they're, they're so funny. Sassy, sassy yeah. little boy. And the dynamic between them uh, is it's, it's sort of hyper-naturalistic. It's naturalistic but feels artificial because it's too good to be true in a way that they just bounce off each other so brilliantly uh that that kid is just sort of superhuman but there's something that feels so fresh there's the spirit of the french new wave is still in this part of new hollywood and there is that real sense of spontaneity in a lot of the scenes including those between um our heroine and chris christopherson whose character's name was when well, no, i have forgotten it's doesn't just, matter doesn't matter he's it's just all the beard, beard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> david david old david beard beard oh my god i'm having a moment <laughs> but he's it, got a great beard in this he has film. a wonderful yeah. beard he gives good beard this. for sure yeah it yeah. features very prominently in the yeah. scene yeah <laughs> i want to touch your beard <laughs> he um Please go before I start talking about Christopherson's beard more. Well, I will. Okay, I will uh, move on. And <laughs> so this film, uh, for all of that sort of naturalistic dialogue, it's actually hyper-stylized as well. The camera is seldom still for a moment, and it it's, has this all these sweeping movements and sudden zooms and pans, and it, it's gorgeous. Uh, but it reminds me uh, of a, 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 film, a film that actually most reminded me of in terms of its camera work, um, so we move forward about 20 years and head to New Zealand and Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures where similarly the camera just, it, it rhymes with the uh, 
mercurial nature of its characters that somehow the the these flighty people uh, and their flights of fancy are mirrored beautifully expressionistically in the camera work it's all virtuoso stuff but you don't sit there admiring it for the sake of it you just go wow you get caught up in it and all of this this wild energy that um that our, our heroine uh, alice uh, it, it, her her life, her her very um, you know, it, it's a, a delicate, fragile existence. It's precarious, but she's got energy to burn, and uh, and you know we, we side with her all along. She, I also feel the camera work does something similar to what it does in Goodfellas. So Goodfellas is often acclaimed as you know the great, beautiful tracking shots following these men into their their, their private spaces, and we see what's going on behind closed doors in the secret world of gangsters. You've kind of got that happening already in Alice doesn't live here anymore but instead of the private world of gangsters it's the private world of people who work menial jobs and sort of have these paycheck to paycheck um lifestyles where they don't know what's going to happen the next day and you know the camera often takes us behind the counter of a restaurant into into the toilets where she has a heart I was just thinking of exactly that, that, that scene. That's that a real standout that's scene. That's like a really parallel bars. scene to yeah. Goodfellas I think. Exactly. I thought exactly the same I love thing. how it takes us into the private world of, of the, these these working class people. Um, beautiful camera work and you're right it has a Cerise when you talk about the energy it creates and the way it captures the sense of these are people constantly constantly moving often not really too sure where they're going to end up. Probably in Chris Christopherson's beard, which is where I wanted to end up watching the film. I'm weird for Christopherson. I'm like, dot com. That's me. I, he, the, I think he's one of the lost... I don't think you're on your own with that. Like, no. But he's really one of the lost greats of the 70s. I just yeah. don't think he gets the, the adoration that he like, deserves. If he, you're he into did this country film. music, he still looms large. He did this film in the same year that he had a small part in uh, Peck and Pa's Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Garcia. Mm-hmm. He would, of course, go on to do A Star is Born with Barbara Streisand, which I believe is being remade... I think there's talk about a remake of that. Mm. But that's Mm. one of the great 1970s films, and he's extraordinary. I was about to say, let's not forget those films. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But he was also in um, a film, again, that's been broadly forgotten, and I've got no idea why, which is The Sailor Who Fell from Grace from the Sea, which was 1976, a couple of years after this. Really good beard action based on a Yukio Mishima book, Sarah Miles, like one of the great 1970s films. Christopherson's one of those people that, that really pops up through the decade, and I think he's used extraordinarily well in this film in that he should josh like you said he should be the that should be the moment where we switch from a female kind of alignment i I like i like the idea of alignment more than identification and we feel that that's happening when he's introduced you know the camera looks quite lovingly at him it's that old laura mulvey to be looked atness as soon as that beard appears we're kind of with him but we never we never surrender from alice we actually end up more with her one of the one of the strangest moments of this film for me is how it deals with um adults hitting children which is very much a zeitgeist you know of its time and my reaction wasn't a judgmental thing you know obviously things are different now to how they were then but i kind of did that little labrador moment like like (laughs) that threw me but there was something about the dynamic of it that i found really fascinating i think there's something in that scene that would have had almost a similar effect at the time because it's prefaced with the moments of domestic violence before that so even though maybe the character of david's not aware of what Alice and her son have gone through. I think for an audience member, seeing him hit the son while Alice is in the kitchen and then seeing her reaction kind of makes sense because you're caught within this stage of, well, in the context of the scene, you know, and from David's point of view, it kind of makes, you know, a degree of sense and we understand his frustration. But there's also that that panic and terror you feel for Alice and, and what she's just experienced and what that has dredged up for, for her character. Which leads us to the other 
big male character in this film who he haven't mentioned because he doesn't really have that great a beard. Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel. <laughs> I remember the who remains strangely clothed in this film for most of it. <laughs> <laughs> for a change. Before he whipped it out every moment. Um, <laughs> was in his beard then. Um, what I... Sorry. <laughs> Terrible. Um, I remember the first time I saw this film, the, what, what loomed large in my mind was a real nervousness and anxiety about what are the men in this film who we introduced to going to do to Alice and her child. Because very early in the film it's established that, you know, the, the men in her world can be quite brutal and violent. They, they can be psychologically and emotionally abusive and, and some can can get, get even worse than that. And so for most of the time we spend with Chris Christopherson's character, I had a sense of real nervousness about where is this going to go? And so that scene where he does blow his stack and, you know, he, he smashes a record and, you know... You know, he, he starts smashing up his his apartment in anger. It's quite gut churning and, and, and terrifying, and I think it's been and it's problematic for some people the way this film resolves that. But I think it's just the sophistication of the film that shows us that you know some adults do have these emotions, but can contain them to a degree that doesn't go into full blown violence. And the film is about Alice's survival. Yeah, like it's unrelentingly that is what it holds at its core, which makes it again for me very very different from a lot of Scorsese films. And that this is about a woman learning how to survive. Yeah, and the potential of violence against her does loom large throughout the entire film. And it doesn't punish her for desiring agency Absolutely at all. I mean, not. The end of this film was so strong, I'd completely forgotten the ending. The one scene that I do want to come back to, um, and, and it just jogged my memory when you were talking about the cinematic style and the camera work, is that extraordinary moment where she comes into town and she performs um, at the piano bar. She sort of stops, and the camera movements where we keep circling the bar and the editing of that sequence is such a masterclass. And, you know, Thelma Schoonmaker is, is sort of the, the editor who's most aligned with Scorsese, the longtime collaborator. But on this film, it was Marsha Lucas, which was George Lucas's partner, actually edited this film, who was then the supervising editor in Taxi Driver with Thelma Schoonmaker. So there's a real kind of key transition here between women, female collaborators and the editing style. But the editing in this film, again, like his later films with Thelma, is just extraordinary. I think the whole point of women collaborating with him here is, is crucial. I believe this was really an Ellen Burstyn vehicle before it was a Scorsese film. I don't know that he was necessarily even the first choice no, to direct wasn't. this film. And um, this was well before Marty could do a one for me, one for the studio, one for me type thing. I mean, he was still an up-and-coming talent, uh, an undoubtable talent and, and surely destined for greatness. But uh, at this point in time, he was still a jobbing director. And yet this film is so stylized and... Uh, uh, magnificent to, to behold uh, and yet emotionally true I feel um, even though I think some of the yeah, the, the DV stuff is quite tra- problematic uh, probably was at the time it's hard for me to it's put my to mind it's yeah, yeah. it is meant to be um, yeah, there's no neatness to it, is there? No. Yeah. But I, I really do get that sense that there is that much more uh, of, um, a, a, I hesitate to say feminine, but a female input into this film that uh, is a, a lesser a lesser factor in the production of his later films, notwithstanding his own mum usually doing all the catering. Um, but, you know, and, and Thelma, and a, of and course. And a king of comedy. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, the king of comedy. <laughs> Almost unwatchably brilliant, that film. Or one of those rare scenes of 
wonderful female camaraderie with the three waitresses. We have Alice, Flo, and is it and Vera? And poor Vera's <laughs> poor off. Vera. In, in, poor Vera's <laughs> off in the toilet, and and Mel, the guy who's running the the diner, screams at Flo at one key point in the film. You know, where's Vera? And she snaps and says something about she went to take a shit and the hogs ate her. And the response of Alice's character, she we think she's burst into tears because of this moment of violence, and she's actually broken into this hysterical laughter. And the bonding that ensues between those three three key female characters afterwards is an absolute moment of joy. Like, I just wanted that that moment to hold on the screen for as long as possible. And you even get the reaction of Chris Christopher in the, in the kind of the, the, the background watching this scene. And you get the sense that the other actors are actually enjoying how genuine this emotion is. There's a sense of awe in the scene. Yeah. Absolutely. It's such a splendid film. I love how much it feels like a Scorsese film and at the same time how much it disrupts so many conventional readings of Scorsese's and auteur. I mean, I used to think of, you know, the, the transition was Mean Streets to Taxi Driver, you know, then to Raging Bull. This is the epic of, of loner male violence and his study of these these psychotic men. But, of course, you know, in the mix there we have Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and New York, New York, which, which really obliterates any attempt to n- neatly you know, package Scorsese away into to an easy academic yeah. reading. And weirdly, while Alice is a much lesser known film than these other canonical titles you just mentioned, Thomas, it became a hugely popular sitcom for about 10 years afterwards, which yeah, I, I, no I, idea I about grew that. up with. It was on New Zealand television, weirdly, but apparently ran about 10 years, won lots of awards, and, and featured some of the same cast, including Mel, the cafe owner, or the greasy spoon owner. <laughs> let's, let's not uh, um, give it uh, uh, ears and graces. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it just don't above have... Above its station. Yeah, above its station. You have been listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R with myself, Thomas Cordwell, along with Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Now, we talked about Chasing Asylum. That is getting a limited theatrical release from this Thursday, courtesy of Cinema Plus, but there are also numerous event screenings around the country and you can request your own event screening. Go to chasingasylum.com.au for more details. The Meddler is on limited release through Sony Pictures. And Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore is screening at the Australian Centre for the moving image as part of the Essential Scorsese selected by David Stratton program. Go to acme.net.au forward slash film for details. You can also go to the Plato's Cave page on Triple R and I've put up direct links to all those websites I've just mentioned. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.